0: Today's readings from Mark chapter 9 verses 2 to 29. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach. And there appeared before him Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters one for you one for moses and one for elijah he did not know what to say they were so frightened then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud this is my son whom i love listen to him suddenly the day looked they looked around they no longer saw anyone with them except jesus as they were coming down the mountain jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind come out only by prayer. Amen. And thanks be to God for the reading.
1: We're going to sing just be still for the presence of the Lord. The Holy One is here. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this place, we ask that your power would move and your healing come as we read and meditate on your word together. Amen. Any hill walkers? Anyone like a hill walk? Or in the past, got up Ben Lomond or Ben Nevis if you're ambitious, or Tinto, or the little hill on the side of Strathclyde Park, if you're if you're not so ambitious. There's something about walking up a hill and getting to the top and seeing the view. Many folk will reflect it's, uh, I've got a picture, yep, Uh, almost like a spiritual experience. Those that have gone up a hill, we we went up a, a, a hill when we were on holiday last year, I will confess. We went up on a tall mountain because it had a cable car that took you to the top and you'd have to walk it. But still, when you get to the top of a mountain, there's almost a spiritual experience, isn't there? There's a sense of achievement there's a sense of being able to see the big picture. And also, unless it's in Scotland and it's raining, there's a view. And many feel, in in many religions and spiritual experiences have, uh, have seen mountaintops as being places where, they talk about a thin place, where it almost seems that you're in the presence of the Creator, you're able to see the beauty around you. Scripture, uses that as well. If you think in the Old Testament, mountains were very important places. Mount Sinai, where the presence of God appeared to Moses and the law was given and Israel really started. Or the Temple Mount, where first of all, Abraham and Mount Moriah brought Isaac in that that act where he, he brought his son and his son was saved. But then also the place that the temple was built in the Jewish people were always going up to worship, to the top of what was the place where God was. Or we can think of, as we mentioned Elijah earlier, when his big spiritual contest was on top of Mount Carmel, where the fire of God comes down and consumes the offering, and he has victory over his enemies. And so what we find in in this passage, at the beginning of it, chapter 9, verse 2, is it simply says Jesus took his followers his disciples up a mountain. And on the mountain top, they are going to have a spiritual experience. Now, I, I, actually, the mountain that, we don't know which mountain it was, because the Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but tradition has that it was Mount Ta- Tabor, which is in, in, in northern Israel. I've actually been there. Has anyone else been to Mount Tabor? A few folk have visited the Holy Land. And it, it's quite a terrifying thing, because what happens when you get there is the coach can only get halfway up And then you have to park the coach, and you have to get into a taxi. And there's a wee group of taxis that specialize in taking you up the rest of the mountain. Now, the the, the road up to the rest of the mountain has narrow, sharp bends and sudden drops. And so it's a terrifying taxi ride. In fact, what they say locally is that God blesses the taxi drivers of Mount Tabor because they get more people praying than any preacher. (laughs) I like that. Anyway, they go up the mountain, and they go up that mountain for a spiritual experience. Context, again, we've been saying this as we've gone through Mark's gospel, that one of the things that's good about reading the whole gospel right through is you get context, because it starts by saying, after six days. And these little introductions remind us it's part of a bigger story. What's been going on in the bigger story? The first eight chapters of the gospel, the question has really been, who is Jesus? And all the miracles and the healings and the teaching is around people asking, who is this man? And then at the end of, at the beginning of chapter 8, Jesus takes them up um, and Peter says, in response to the question of, who do you say I am? He says, you're the Christ, he gets it. But immediately from that point, Jesus begins to teach that the Messiah must suffer and if you want to follow him, you must be willing to. To suffer too and remember Peter says, no, that can't be right and Jesus rebukes him and calls him Satan and, and Jesus and Peter in that sense uh, goes from a spiritual high where Jesus says, You got it right, you know I'm a Christ to a complete low where Jesus says, You got it wrong. You've, you, you, you're, you're talking like Satan. And the reason for that is that for the disciples, we said this last week, suffering was not on their agenda. They wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted to be followers of Jesus. They wanted to know the presence of God in Jesus, but they wanted to know that that life would be better, not tougher, that their problems would be gone. And they took it very hard when Jesus said, this is actually about me suffering and dying for you, and it's actually going to be about you coming in that difficult way of suffering. Suffering was not on their agenda. And that's I think also our reality, isn't it? Suffering is not on our agenda. We want a way forward that has crowns and glory and the presence of God, but we don't want suffering. And we struggle with faith when we find it. Anyway, up the mountain, we're told that Jesus is transfigured. He's changed, and His clothes become spiritually white, And there are Moses and Elijah appearing to him. Now, we said with the children, the reason it's Moses and Elijah is Moses is the great lawgiver, and Elijah is representing the greatest of the prophets. And really, then God's voice says, this is my son. And it's as if God is saying, I'll tell you who Jesus is. He's my son. And all the law and the prophets of the Old Testament are caught up in him. They all point to him. Well, The other thing to remember is that Moses and Elijah were also mountain climbers. Moses had gone up on Mount Sinai, and there on Mount Sinai, not only had he been given the Ten Commandments, but he had been given a vision of God. God, Moses had said to Elijah, sorry, Moses had said to God on Mount Sinai, I want to see you. I want to know you're real. I want a sense of your presence. And God had said to him, well, I'll give you a sense of my glory, but you can't see it all. And so he hid him in the cleft of a rock, and we're told it metaphorically that God passed by, and just let Moses glimpse for a moment his back. And he saw, just in that moment, the glory of God. then he had to come down the mountain. Two things here. In that moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are given a glimpse of what Moses saw—the glimpse of God's glory, pure, brilliant whiteness of Jesus, the light that the angels had spoken of. But it's only a glimpse. John will write later in his gospel: "The Word became flesh." and we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, the utter glory of Jesus. And one of the things that's being said at this point is, look, there can't be any middle ground with who Jesus is. You can't just say he's a good teacher, or a good healer, or a good man, or a good ethical teacher. Really, the whole of the Gospels are testifying that this is the presence of the Almighty God, and you worship or you reject it. There's no middle ground. And they're absolutely terrified. And and, and terrified, being terrified in the presence of God is something you'll find in the Old Testament an awful lot. Moses was told, if you see my full face, you will just die. Because the full face of God shows our complete sinfulness. That's why When when, when Adam sinned in the garden, he had to hide from God, because he couldn't bear the presence of God anymore. It's why Isaiah, when he gets a glimpse of God in the temple, says, woe is me, because I'm I'm an unclean man. I've done bad things, and I'm in the presence of the Holy God. It's why Peter, in Luke chapter 5, when he gets a glimpse of who Jesus is, has to say, go away, because I'm a sinful man. But here, a glimpse of God given, and they do not die. And that's something that's different that's happening in Jesus. Remember in the beginning, we're told when the glory of the Lord shone on the shepherds, they were sore afraid. Brilliant expression, that that sense of the, the terror of God. And then the angel said, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news of glad tidings. For to you a Savior is born, Christ is Lord, and the glory to God in the highest, and peace to those on whom God's favor rests. For in Christ we are invited into that presence of God, and we are invited into it in His death and resurrection in a way that we are forgiven, and we're able to come into the presence of God. But in Jesus, all our longings are met. The longing for love that we have, the longing for completion and purpose, the satisfaction we seek when we come fully into the presence of the Lord Jesus, then everything that our hearts desire, we find in Him. Back in chapter 8, Peter had said, you are the Christ, you are the Savior. And in chapter 9 on the mountain, he catches a glimpse what that means. It's a foretaste of the resurrection, where Jesus will appear again in white and His glory around Him. It's a foretaste of the ascension, when we see Jesus raised up above the world. It's a foretaste of the Jesus who will return. It's a foretaste, if you like, of heaven, where we will see God face to face. But the important thing here is it's just a foretaste. It's only for a moment. And then Peter says something very strange to Jesus. He says, let me build three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, when you read this, my, my first thought when I read this was you know, Peter's just sort of havering. You know, you know when you get surprised? You, do you know when you get surprised by someone or overcome by someone or, or maybe you meet a celebrity and you just say a lot of garbage? You know, has you, everybody, anyone had that expression? When you, when you know you should say something profound and you've opened your mouth and absolute drivels come out. That's what I thought Peter was saying when he said, let's build three tents. But I wonder that he's not saying that. You see, what he's really saying in that mountain experience, that moment's glimpse is, Jesus, can we just stay here? Can we just live up this mountain? I could make some tents and we could settle down because this is a really good place to be. We've seen your glory. We've seen the end game. We've seen all that's promised in God. And, And you know, it would just be great to sit here, no problems at all, um, and we'll never go down the hill. Yeah, I don't know if you ever climbed a mountain and felt that. Felt like, I could just stay here. I could just stay here until you are hungry. Because what's down in the valley? And do you remember that? The rest of the chapter that, that, that Jean read. It, it's quite long and it gets quite confusing. But what's down in the valley are demons. What's down in the valley are, are sick people. What's down in the valley are problems. What's down in the valley are, are disciples that are trying to do good things and they're failing. What's down in the valley is lack of prayer. What's down in the valley is everything being wrong and, 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 and people that can't handle it and, and and struggles and lack of faith and all those other things and the messy things of, of life and of faith. and. You can suddenly see Peter's point, can't you? Let's just stay up here in this good place and never go down the valley. Because down in the valley is always a problem. Remember Moses, when he was up on the mountain, that glimpse of God had perfection. I see all the holiness. And then he went down. And if you know the story of Exodus, he went down and what did he find? He found his brother making a golden calf. Or you think of the story of Elijah. He's on the top of the mountain and the fire of God comes and and takes away the offering. We looked at this uh, last year. And it was that high point where Elijah knew that God was with him and the power of God was with him. And then he goes down the valley. Jezebel says, I'm going to get you. And Elijah has a breakdown and it all goes to pot. If only we could stay and live on top of the mountains and for the disciples, it's bigger than that. Jesus has said, we're going to Jerusalem, and we're going to die, and you're going to have to pick up your cross. And in that moment, they're given a foretaste of what will be at the end of the resurrection. And, and Peter's just simply saying, can't we just stay on the high? Forget the cross. Forget the journey to Jerusalem. Forget the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the problems and the, the pain and all of that. Let's just stay up here with the vision of glory. I just want to stay on the mountain, Lord. I just want to live there. I don't want to follow your plan and your way of suffering and problems. I don't want to face all that stuff. I just want to stay on the mountain. Can you relate to that? I just want to stay singing your praise and knowing your presence and forget everything else. That's why Peter, as they're going back down, says about Elijah, because Elijah's supposed to come back, it's a a, a Jewish understanding, before the end of time. and It's as if Peter's saying, look, can we just fast forward to the end of this, to the good bits, to the happy ever after, and not go through all the pain? Jesus actually says, well, Elijah has come back, because John the Baptist is an Elijah figure, and he just got his head cut off, so we've got a way to go yet, a way to go. Question for us, though, is that The Christian life isn't about standing on mountains, it's about going down from there through the valley, through the the suffering, through the difficult places, and the question is how do we do that? Does the suffering that comes, that the, the, the Lord says will come, does it make us bitter and joyless and despairing, or does it make us wiser and stronger and sweeter and bring us closer to God? And you know, one of the key things is this, we have to live in the valley, but we also have to live in the valley with a glimpse from the mountain in our hearts and minds. Because it's on the mountain that we're reminded of what God is going to do. It's on the mountain we have a glimpse of all that has been promised, and that sustains us. It's one of the reasons why when we worship, we sing songs of glory. We sing songs of what God has done and what God will do. We sing songs of Christ's return. Because what we're doing is, for that moment, we're standing on the mountain. We're allowing the Word of God to remind us where it's headed, what the end game will be, what the resurrection will look like, what the new heaven and the new earth will be, what the justice will be that will flow like rivers. In order that we can live in the valley because we know what's at the end we have had the glimpse of glory as it was. You know, in the middle of all of the pain and the struggle of the civil rights movement, when everything seemed to be opposed to it, Martin Luther King gave a speech where he talked about, I have a dream. I have a dream of one day there will be racial justice, of one day there will be peace, of one day there will be an end to division. And what did he see in that speech? It's called the mountain speech, because he said, I have been to the mountaintop. I have seen the promised land. I know what God has promised. And it wasn't that, that, that Martin Luther King was some sort of dreamer living on a mountaintop and not dealing with the valley, but he was able to go through the valley because he had the vision of what God had promised that he'd seen on the mountaintop. And so they come from the mountaintop back into the valley. And what do they find in the valley? They find a father and a son who is a demon. And here are the other nine disciples. Three were with Jesus, nine down. And the other nine disciples are trying to do stuff. And they're trying to cast out the demon. They're trying to carry on the work that Jesus has been doing. They're trying to make things better. They're doing their best. But it's very interesting because Jesus in the end will say this demon can only come out with prayer. What does that tell us? They were trying to sort things without prayer. They were down in the valley trying to do their best, but they had forgotten to look up. They'd forgotten to call on the power of God. And... They didn't realize how arrogant that was. We can do it. And how clueless it was. Have they not learned anything? And yet, very often, that's where we are, isn't it? I know it's where I am. I'm trying to do things. And I pride myself on it's the right things. And I work quite hard. And I I do my best. But it's prayerless. And it's not looking to the power of God. And it always, always fails. The church does that the whole time, and it often is hopeless until Jesus arrives. And in the middle of our arrogance and our failure, here comes the power of Jesus in that valley. There's one man that's different here, and that's the father of the boy. Now, you might have thought he's the most desperate. He's the one that's got the real problem. He's got a son that's terribly sick. But he says to Jesus, If you are able to help us. He'd brought his son to the disciples, the church, if you like, and he'd found that they were clueless and useless and they're not prayerful, not powerful. But he says to Jesus, Can you help? And Jesus says, all things are possible for him who believes. Can you believe? There's a question. Can you believe? Can you trust me? And the man's reply is is quite interesting because he doesn't say, oh yes, Lord, I can trust you. I'm with you 100%. And he doesn't say, no, Lord, don't trust you at all. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I wonder that, that that expression for many of us sums up our faith, doesn't it? I believe, but I also have unbelief. Is that fair? Yeah? I don't know any Christian, if they're being honest, that, ca- that that has belief but doesn't have unbelief. Here it is in brutal honesty. He says, I see something here, but I am riddled by doubt. And that is all that Jesus needs. Because Jesus is not saying, come to me when you've got it all sorted. Come to me when you've worked it all out. Come to me when nothing's a problem for you and I will show you love. Jesus is saying, you come in your desperation, struggling and riddled with doubts when you're not sure, but you're reaching out to me. And there my power is released. And the father places into the hands of Jesus, his child. And you might have thought, that's it. It's all sorted. But Read the quote carefully because, again, it's not the case that when he does that, everything's fine and everything's sorted. Actually, no, it seems to get worse. The kid's screeching out. Then he, he appears that he's dead. It all seems to be difficult here down in the valley. it's as if this story is telling us, you know, when you trust Jesus in your doubts and your trust, it's not that that makes everything better. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. We're still going to have to go through this way of suffering. And in fact, following Jesus can make it often more difficult because it raises more questions and it causes more grief and there can be persecution and opposition added to it as well. But only through all of that do we get to where the Lord is leading us. But we can only go through the valley if we hold on to the glimpse of glory. If we hold on to the promises of the resurrection, of the second coming of the world that is made new again, only when we get that right do we have from the Lord the spiritual strength to go on. There's something about sons and fathers in this passage as well because on the mountaintop the voice of the Father says, this is my Son. And yet that Father too will surrender His Son on the cross for us. His love will be seen in all of this. So we go through the valley the valley of the shadow of death, as the the psalmist will put it. But we do so knowing that the one who started us off will lead us till we are safely home.